What I'm promoting is that we need to go, each and every one of us, not go to a class or download a Headspace app. We have to teach people how to think and remember. Meditation, that's what we can do. Capitalism hates silence. It hates a lack of um, doing. So we need non-doing. That's what meditation is, just sitting. Uh, to think and to remember. So this stillness, uh, stillness and silence, Nobody anywhere is going to promote that unless they're selling it. Consciousness. The notion of the self. Personality structure. Transactional analysis. Symbiosis. Zen Buddhism. Teacher-student. Relationships. Training yourself in how to think. To subvert is to undermine the existing system of inscribed power and authority. What's happening in the digital space. The virtual world. Much of us live in a hyper-stimulated present where language itself has become the info currency in the sequence of corporate capitalism. The injunction of the virtual world is... The gatekeepers of our speech and written word are global tech monopolies. We cannot transcend or go beyond our lack through craving. What are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? The subversive therapist is about what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. All right. Welcome, everybody. Uh, can you hear me in the back? All right. Uh, we'll close the door in a minute here, too. So. Uh, thanks for coming. Um, honored to speak here at Nobel. Uh, a little bit about myself. My name is Andrew Archer. I'm a licensed independent clinical social worker. My full-time role is in private practice doing psychotherapy. So I meet with kids as young as five, adults as old as their 70s, um, and using transactional analysis, which is something I'll talk a little bit about in uh, this talk. I want to just go over kind of the title of the presentation, um, Craving. If, if you have any background in Buddhism, you know the word craving. Um, it's inherent to uh, ego consciousness or human consciousness. Uh, this starts when you're about a year and a half old. The baby says, mine, or gimme, okay? So because we have self-awareness, we recognize ourselves as separate, uh, we want for ourselves. And the Buddha talked about how that is suffering. If you don't have an attachment to something, it doesn't matter if it happens or it doesn't happen. Okay, so it's the root of our suffering. And what I think about the virtual space is it's basically a want mode system. Whatever I want or whatever I want to look at or whatever I want to do, I get it. Uh, and there's no end to wanting, just like the ego. There's no end to wanting. I'll loan you my three-year-old if you want to find out, okay? <clears throat> so what is the virtual world doing to us? Nothing. We are doing it to ourselves. We are volunteering to be subjects in this uh, experimental psychology uh, program that these big tech platforms have going, um, all about conditioning us to be subjects, to get data. Just uh, Emily Martin, who's a great writer, anthropologist, had a book last year, Experiments of the Mind, where she went into uh, experimental psychology labs in the United States and studied them ethnographically as cultures. And what she figured out was, uh, essentially, that they're training the person to be a subject in certain ways. And think about if you've ever been to a psych lab or 
participated is like they sit you down in a chair, they put you in front of a computer, they say look at this fixation point. All of that uh, structure is what these platforms are built off of, was her conclusion. Uh, is that we're being trained in certain ways to be subjects. So you can't go on Facebook and just wander around, right, with anonymity. You gotta sign up, you're a user, you're a profile, you're a separate self. Then you can go on Facebook, okay? <clears throat> so, what we can do about it, uh, I know based on class and different situations that not everybody can just delete Facebook. But we need to work on that part of us that wants, okay? Not doing something. I train all of my clients in meditation and it's very difficult to sit and not do something. But that's what we need to do because that's when thinking happens. So my issue with the virtual space is that we're not thinking and we're not remembering. We're just being fed choices to, to pick from like consumers. This or that. You like this video, so then you'll like that video. Okay. Here's my fancy algorithm. I did have to go on YouTube to figure out how to do that. <laughs> it looks like it's scrolling across the screen, right? But it's just lights going on and off because you train it, an algorithm, to do this, then do that. Don't do this, do that. It's a system that just runs, and it'll just keep running you know, forever. But there's nothing sentient about it. There's, no, you know, there's a, book, a book called The Myth of Artificial Intelligence. AI will never uh, be sentient. Why? AI doesn't have goosebumps. Humans have goosebumps, right? And you, you know it when you have goosebumps. And you have intuition that you feel in your gut more than your head. You know, a three-year-old will walk outside and say, Dad, I think it's going to rain today. I'm like, what, what are you, a meteorologist now? Like, what are you talking about? It's going to rain today. It's like, he's, he's making a guess, a conjecture, okay? Common sense. That's what a computer can't do. Okay? They don't have common sense. So it's a long book. Don't buy it. Get the cliff notes. But it's a myth. This whole thing is a myth. Think about, uh, um, well, I'll get into that later. Okay, so what I, my, my thesis is that we're in this symbiotic relationship with, with the virtual world. And I'll give you an example for that. But the issue is this craving. And when you're in a symbiotic relationship, if only one person is uh, craving, the other person thinks for them. Think about like a, an alcoholic and their partner who's sober. They're always taking care of that other person. They're driving them places, getting beer for them, whatever. It's a passive arrangement. So then the alcoholic never quits drinking and the other person never stops enabling. Okay, interesting thing happened a couple weeks ago. My iPhone 7 died. <laughs> couldn't get it to work, couldn't get it to turn on. You know, so I got pictures of all my kids from when they're babies way back, blah, blah, blah. But I actually felt free for a few days without the phone. First it was anxiety and helplessness and kind of powerlessness, but it was, then I was like, oh, yeah, I don't have to be that same person that I was since 2014. Because it's all stored, of course, in there. And it creates a continuity of the self. Uh, because you're the same in all these profiles and all these things you do. And that's problematic. When you're little, you don't have that sense of being a solid entity. We train people. We train my daughter, you're Vivian. Here's what you're responsible for. This is JJ and then uh, Leonard. So I get the new iPhone 13, the, uh, <laughs> the one with, that has the portrait you know, feature. So 
what you see here, you know, I mean, my, my kids are cute, but they're not this cute. <laughs> because what the device does is it makes things hyper real. More real, they look more real than how they actually look, okay? And uh, again, in this lecture, my concern is from a parent perspective. We got the kindergarten app. My son just started kindergarten. We got the soccer app with separate. Uh, and then at the daycare, there's an app. Every time they go to the bathroom, every time they get changed, every time they have a fight with their friends, it's all tracked. It's all stored. Continuity of the self. My concern, and maybe I'm paranoid, is that uh, these kids will never actually have a private experience that isn't being monitored or manipulated in some way. And you know, we were talking about mental health uh, earlier today. Uh, it doesn't bode well for that, obviously. So that's the perspective I'm coming from. Who knows? You just yell it out. But who said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results? Einstein. Einstein. Whoops. Yeah. So there's a meme. Google this quote and you find it. <laughs> it's like a mansplaining how to use the internet here. The funny thing is, uh, come on. He didn't say it. <laughs> That's not his quote. But we all know he said it, right? That's the first thing you thought of. Because we've heard that quote before and it's attributed to him. He didn't say it. They had it in AANA pamphlets back in the 80s. And then the quote itself is verbatim in this novel, Sudden Death. But he never said it. So this is a, a tip-off in terms of the virtual world. What is it? It's just a recombining machine. You're constantly taking things and combining them again and over and over again. And if it's viral or like most viewed, it goes all the way up to the top. So we think that Einstein said it. Now, it, both the photographs of my kids and then this example, what's ironic with all this technology is that it's becoming less and less apparent what's real and what's fake in the world. You call some a place, is it a real person, is it a computer, you know, the bots pop up, hey, how can I help you get this shopping thing? It's like, is that a real person, is it not? You know, and then not to mention the news media and what's going on, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not helping us relate to one another, I don't think. And this is something the French sociologist Jean Baudrillard was thinking about in the 80s that it's all just simulations of signs recombined and making this hyper-reality. I don't want, don't want to spend too much time on this, but then um, one of the philosophers I like is Byung Chul Han. He's from uh, South Korea, but he lives in Germany now. Um, he's making the same point. His, his most recent book is called Non-Things. So as we digitalize everything, and 99% of all of human history is in digital form now, uh, we're creating simulations of things. We're not creating anything tangible, of course. Um, and it's not helping us um, distinguish true from false. Uh, if you believe QAnon, you'll find information that confirms QAnon. If you think Russia stole our election or didn't or whatever, you know, you can combine all this information that other people um, have said. Not to mention, you know, deep fakes and different things they talked about um, related to virtual reality. 
so where are we at? Um, this is every 60 seconds. You have this many Google searches, this many tweets, stories. And when I was going through this data, it made me think of this short story I read called Terminal Boredom. Uh, Suzuki is the, the last name of the author. Tragic, she committed suicide uh, soon after she wrote this story called Terminal Boredom. But it's a dystopian future, and all the young people are unemployed, and they're bored, and they feel so exhausted, and they don't eat. And it's like, I work with a lot of <laughs> millennials in the iGen, and it's like, yeah, that's what, that's what they're describing. There's no, there's no hope. Everything is despair online. And it has to be more, you know, the, the titles just seem to be getting more uh, kind of drastic, like civilization collapse, certainly like climate change things and, and war, but it's like to get your attention, you have to be more and more aggressive about how disparaging um, things are. So in the, uh, so they're bored of course, but these, uh, this girl and her, her boyfriend are talking and um, she says to him, well, uh, so do you like me? And he says, yeah, I like you. And so she says, what do you mean? And he says, well, I like you like I like myself. And she's like, that's one hell of an answer. <laughs> but I think that's the, the virtual world we're becoming even more narcissistic. And we want to just be with people that are like me. You know, that that's like with these echo chambers or everything else. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the, some of the more numbers here. This is from Richard Seymour's book, The Twittering Machine, where he talks about, you know, there's never been so much writing in human history than now. We're constantly typing away, but it's information. Communication uh, is meant to you know, disappear. You have a phone call with somebody, it, it vanishes. Uh, you have a private conversation, it's not tracked and stored. Everything with the virtual space is tracked and stored um, within these certain frameworks that we'll talk about. Um, and if you're one of those people that says, well, I just go on social media at night, it's just for like a couple hours, that works out to be about six years of your life if you go on two hours every night. So it is, it's a significant amount of time. Uh, and then COVID, of course, these tech companies wait for a crisis and then they push the things they already have on the back burner like Zoom and, and other uh, technologies and then we adapt to them. And that's basically what the, the terminal boredom story is about. These individuals separate, you know, just adapting uh, because they think they're separate selves. Now, my background is in Buddhism, and uh, we can talk a little bit about that, um, but the, the impetus should be how do we all get together? I mean, we're all in a room together now, right? If we all have some sense of what's going on, we could actually make very big changes. I'm kind of torn because I think uh, big tech, you know, they own 13% of the S&P 500, trillions and trillions of dollars, but do they really have that much power? Like if we all delete Facebook and we get everybody we know to delete Facebook and we stop buying iPhones or, you know, even just reveal, you know, what's going on. I mean, it's an extraction industry. Like when you think of uh, this phone, think about it as two parts. The front is, the, is Apple and the Apple software, right? But the manufacturing is in China. Foxconn is the largest uh, factory in the world, builds all of the devices for Apple. And so you have state capitalism in China, an autocratic government. So uh, if you're in high school and you want an internship, 
they ship you over to the dormitories at Foxconn and you spend 12 hours rubbing this metal so it's smooth all day. So you have in the US this corporate capitalism where it's essentially socialism for these companies and then the state run and this is what you get. Apple sends, sells about 200 million of these a year and they're meant to be disposable, you know, so we buy uh, another one. But the regulations in China around workers' rights, they're, they're inhaling aluminum dust. You know, I don't have to tell you what that does to your lungs if you inhale aluminum dust all the time. So, you know, of all the stuff I'll present, read uh, Kate Crawford's book, Atlas of AI. It's an extraction industry. You gotta dig up the earth to get the lithium, to get the rare minerals to put into the phone. Um, you need an intense amount of water to cool all these servers. Google uses an immense amount of electricity. They might present themselves as progressive and going green. There's nothing green about the virtual world. And if you think about these numbers now, how, how are we gonna sustain that 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Um, we're each building our own media empire, basically, and being encouraged to do that. But empires are built off of exploitation. And the same is true for these. Uh, the, the workers at Foxconn, I think it was 2012, uh, over a dozen of them committed suicide. They jumped off the top of the dormitory as a protest, a political protest about the conditions. And Foxconn is a really nice corporation, so what they did was they put nets around the dormitory. And they put bars on the windows so they couldn't jump out. And everything stayed the same. And they offered them more money, but they didn't really give them more money. Okay, so <clears throat> there's a screen time. There's kind of the numbers. You know, we touch this thing about 3,000 times a day. Um, we pick it up a couple hundred times. Uh, it's really become a, a fifth limb, as they say. This is from the book Dying for an iPhone, which uh, very intense um, research and studying of the practices uh, at Foxconn and what's going on uh, with that relationship with Apple and, and Foxconn. So in addition to this, you know, we, we treat this like a little baby. Like this is, we gotta protect it, we gotta put a, a screen cover on it, we gotta make sure it's charged at all times. But the thing is, and what I'm gonna show in terms of personality structure is we're the baby because this thing is feeding us the frames of references and telling us what our parameters for choices are. And so it's a kind of um, simple consciousness that we're in while we're using the, the virtual space. But before we get to that, um, you know, the title of the conversation is about the virtual world. And so I'm intentionally making that vague, but the virtual world is stuff that replaces our senses. So somebody, somebody asked in the last lecture about well, isn't reading a book mindless or whatever? And I said, well, you have to hold the book, and the book has a smell to it, it has a weight to it, there's some sensory aspect um, to it, but things like Bluetooth, Google Glass is like, it's seeing for us, it's, it's hearing for us by putting the information inside. So we're inside our head. When we're listening to a podcast, we're in here. We're not paying attention to the birds and the trees and what's going on uh, out here. And the, the con is, you know, just that you're free to choose whatever you want to see online, whatever you want to do. Uh, but that, that hooks us because we think if we get everything we want, that we'll be happy. And that's actually not how it 
works. Um, there's no end to wanting. That's the problem with the human condition. The ego wants for itself. It's never-ending. Uh, so, you know, let's put that in simple terms. When I go on YouTube because I'm bored at night, when I, go, when I get off of YouTube, I'm like, damn, I'm still bored. All it did was suspend the boredom, right? Whenever we're bored, we pick it up. But it doesn't do anything for the boredom. You know, it just takes us out of there. We escape. We go inside our head. And so basically, my, uh, my idea is that we need to stay here in the real world and practice listening and practice de-escalating, getting outside of our heads. But it's so hard because everything is pulling us in. Like I showed you the apps just for my kids is to be on there all the time. And it's just going to get more immersive, of course, with uh, the metaverse. So it's doing all the sensing um, for you. You can track your menstrual cycle with a specific device. There are rings that you can wear. I have a client that has one. Tracks your breathing, your heart rate, um, <clears throat> calories, you know, and you can get sort of spreadsheets of information um, about you. But fundamentally, it's, uh, it's thinking for you. So the watch tells you to take a deep breath or to get some more steps, right? It's thinking for you. But we need to think for ourselves, and that takes contemplation. We have to think and remember things. And it's going to say, no, let us take over your bank account. Let us take over your calendar, your friends, your content. We'll, do, we'll think about all that stuff for you. If you think of it as a relational process, no, don't do any of that. <laughs> your grocery list or any, no, no, no. Let's, let's consolidate it all here. Uh, <clears throat> and so it's... It's just about you know, creating data, of course, uh, to sell to third parties for advertising. That's what, you know, Zuckerberg goes in front of Congress and he's like, well, we're an advertising company. <laughs> like, what do, you, what do you think we're doing here? It's not a subscription model. They have to create psychological profiles of you to sell them to companies that will give them money for that data to sell you products. The irony is all this production that we're doing online, all our diatribes and our tagging photos and whatever, we don't get any paid for any of that, right? The company takes that to give us more stuff to click on so we stay on their platform so that they can take that data and sell it back to us in the form of a product. It's this like snake eating its own tail or something. I can't think of a metaphor. I don't know, it's something, something like that. <clears throat> but it's not going to help us figure out who we are because that's a relational process. And it's an existential one, a spiritual one. Okay, but on that note, let's, let's together think of a way we can understand ourselves. This is uh, the personality structure that Eric Byrne came up with in the 1950s. He developed transactional analysis. That's what I do with psychotherapy clients, but also when I teach meditation, I use this uh, structure. And the short version is, and I think parents get this intuitively, we have our parents stuck in our head. Okay, it doesn't matter if they're alive or dead. Uh, that's the parent ego state is the top one. So when my son was two and we're at the daycare and he uh, was walking down the stairs, uh, there's two sets of stairs at the daycare. He walks down the stairs, then he wants to go up the stairs. Then he wants to go down the stairs. Then he and I say, make up your mind, you know, because I don't really want to scream at a two-year-old in public. So I say, make up your mind. And 
What is that? What does that even mean? It doesn't, doesn't mean anything. It means your parent is getting very upset at you, but they don't want to look like a crazy person, so they're going to say, make up your mind and hope that you get it, right? So that's something my parents said. So it's a habitual state of mind is the parent. And it's used to take care of kids. So they survive, so they don't die. If you have a kid tomorrow, you'll know how to take care of them because you'll do what your parents did uh, to some degree. So it's really uh, a conservation of energy, that parent state. And when you see people like, like this, they're like more defensive, more uh, self-effacing. That's oftentimes a clue in terms of the parent. Again, I'm giving you the short version here. But the parent state, just like a parent, tries to control their kids. And I'm talking about little kids, okay? Um, but maybe the, what is it, the 360 app that your parents probably still make you sign into? Um, so it's about control. Uh, the adult state, it's, if they had the term back in the 50s, mindfulness. Self-awareness, mindful awareness, that's the adult, the middle circle. And if you have access to the adult state, which means you can concentrate and focus, then you can decide what to pay attention to. The temperature in the room, how dry my mouth gets as I talk, you know, people's eye contact, but also from the adult state, you choose which state of mind to be in. So tonight, you know, I'm not going to go home and start giving a lecture on virtual, on the virtual world to my kids, right? I'm going to lay on the floor, they're going to climb on me, we're going to wrestle, tickle. I'm not going to be in more of the parent and the adult state. I'm going to be in, it's called the child state. The child state is when you're first born, according to the theory, you just have this state of mind, which is a lot of drives, uh, wanting, needs. Um, it's the first part of the personality to develop. And just like a kid, it's potent. You know, the potency of little kids is like, they'll just do whatever you want to do in terms of like fun. They don't, they don't care. I took my oldest to soccer the other week and we were trying to figure out which field he was on, he was going to go with, and there's a kid with his uniform on, so we're like, hey, you two guys go and play. And they went and played, and didn't have to say anything. Didn't have to say, well, are you a Democrat? Or, <laughs> like, <laughs> what's your gender identity? You know, it's like, they just play. They don't have as strong of a parent state that says, well, wait a minute, you know, defensive, uh, et cetera. But, so that's my five-year-old. The three-year-old, he can say no. <laughs> he can say no really strongly, okay? So that's how the child state cuts both ways. It's a heaven or a hell, so to speak. But it's essentially, you know, Wilhelm Reich wrote about this, Freud wrote about this. This is sexual energy. This is libido energy of the child state. It's like, we want. We want this. We want that. That's, that's sexual energy. Uh, but it's really about connection. So I'm not saying little kids are trying to have sex with one another. They want to be connected. They want to sit on your lap. They want to be physically touched. They don't want to be sitting in a chair at a table all day long. Okay. So if we think about those characteristics, you know, the parent state is about the power to rear children. The adult state is really possibility of what you're going to pay attention to and are you going to be objective. Like as I'm talking, you're thinking of other things. You can choose to think about that stuff. You can come back to what I'm saying. Uh, so there's choice. And then uh, the child is all about um, connection. So the simple version of this, because we don't have that much time, if you think of the Taoist energy system, yin and yang, uh, you can't have one without the other. Yin energy is self-effacing, okay? It's more receptive, feminine energy. Um, and then yang is this masculine expansion, 
expansionistic domineering energy. Um, so you can think of the child state as more yang, and the parent and adult are more yin in terms of uh, how the states of mind operate. The simpler version is, you know, we each have a teacher, stuff we know, that's the parent that's been passed on through socialization from each generation to the next, and then a student. You know, the child is about creativity and imagination um, and wonder. So right now I'm teaching you transactional analysis and the stuff that I have researched on the virtual world, okay? And you could all take turns teaching me what you know about it and your experiences, okay? So this represents the dynamism of the, uh, the personality structure. That child state, that potency, most of that's below our awareness. And this is what's getting, of course, hooked in the virtual space because it's about want and uh, craving. So before we, we jump to uh, kind of my thesis, we have to understand that consciousness is not the same in humans and animals, but, but even across the lifetime. So when a baby is born, they don't know that they're a baby or that they're an object or that they're separate. So their, their awareness is reflexive. Whatever is happening in the environment is happening for them. They're just responding reflexively to what's happening versus ego consciousness. I can say, I'm Andrew. I'm a father and I'm a therapist and you know you can describe yourself that's ego consciousness self-awareness you know my cats I suspect cannot do that but who knows <laughs> so the interesting thing about human nature at least from my point of view is there's a, a moment or moments when that happens and I think it's around eight or nine months that all of a sudden the baby is aware that like they're thinking and that they're separate from what's going on. How do they figure that out? Locomotion. They start crawling, they start walking, they go, oh, if I throw my, my daughter, you know, her milk cup or whatever when she's in the high chair, she'll look right at me, drop it. <laughs> it's like, what are you gonna do about it, huh? She'll be trouble, right? Okay, so this is Vivian at about seven months. There's a there, there, right? But before that, they're free. They don't understand themselves as separate. So. Most Buddhist philosophy is about going back to that pre-egogic, before you knew who you were. So they call it emptiness in, uh, in Buddhism. Okay? So just the difference in terms of uh, consciousness. So if we have ego consciousness, a mother, and then we have simple consciousness, a baby. Let's call it a newborn baby. And it's, uh, it's a breastfeeding mother and baby, okay? So it's a symbiotic relationship. Symbiosis in relational terms means when two people become one. So a, ba uh, a newborn baby and a mother, obviously two people there, right? I cut the umbilical cord, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but there's not really, they're not really two. And then of course they're not really one. So this ego structure shows which ego states are active in a symbiosis the parent and the adult for the mother, because she's saying, did I feed them this morning? Do they need a new diaper? What time do I got to put them down for a nap? Uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, they're planning, they're analyzing. Baby doesn't even know they're a baby. So they're just screaming and crying when they need something. And what happens? The mom doesn't go, hmm, I wonder what's happening. It's reflexive. The mother produces milk in tandem 
when the baby cries. So it's a, it's a loving relationship, surely, right? But it's passive. You're not going to go off and go to Gus Davis College if you're still nursing, right? <laughs> so it's a, it's a passive arrangement uh, because the baby isn't doing any of this thinking. Okay, and you probably know where I'm going with this. Online, it's all our desires, all our wants, all our craving. We can get whatever we want, type it in, okay? And the platform, the algorithms control the parameters for our choices. Just like, you know, my, my kid, my oldest likes Bob Dylan and Bob Marley and, and Leonard Cohen, which I love, right? But did he choose to love those artists? No, I played them, right? And then he liked them. So I chose the parameters. I wasn't listening to blues music, for example, or heavy metal, right? So like, yeah, he chose, but it's based on the frames of reference that he received, the options he received. So the virtual world controls, it, controls uh, the context for our choices and how we choose so that we get what we want. So in that way, the algorithms are uh, this yin energy. You know, we, we don't see them, certainly. Uh, there isn't a presence to them. They're just happening, you know, running these programs all the time when we're online, capturing uh, data so that we can just get what we want. Questions about, about this? Um, I guess I would, I would challenge you on, on one thing that um, you, know, you made, going back a few slides, you, you made some points about the physical technology itself, you know, the phone being built to Proxicon and, you know, and so on. Um, and granted, there are some issues there. Um, of course, but there were also issues with child labor in the garment industry here in the United States in the past. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I don't think that we should be conflating the technology with particular content. I mean, yes, I can go to Facebook, which is a not curated, non-curated news source, but I can also go to the Chicago Tribune or the Guardian or the Straits Times or whatever curated content I want to go to on my phone. It's a good it's a good point and uh, I, I wouldn't have a problem with any of the uh, the platforms if they weren't stealing our data to sell them and not to not explaining their 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 algorithms are proprietary which means we don't get to see what they're doing but it's all the same game though it's all the same game in terms of getting data I mean, think. Of, let me give you an anecdote. Right, but a newspaper doesn't track itself. Right, so don't go to Facebook. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, well, it's not that easy for people, though. I mean, I can choose not to go to Facebook, but people got to make a living, and so they're. <laughs> but let me tell you an anecdote that kind of reveals, you know, the good-hearted nature of uh, tech. You remember the Google Maps? 
uh, initiative where they, you, some of you saw those cars with the cameras up on the top driving around. So they took pictures of everything, except in Europe, a lot of the places they told them they can take pictures there for some reason. Uh, but what was going on, this is in Shoshana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, is while they're driving around taking pictures of the streets, they're stealing people's Wi-Fi logins and passwords. Why? Because they can. Smash and grab. I mean, it's the same. I mean, my, my issue is with, with the economic system. And, uh, but, and that's a whole other you know, kind of lecture. But these are, these are not uh, benevolent forces that we're dealing with. And it needs to be exposed. I, I'm, I, I don't have a problem with you know, subscription models to these different things or whatever. But you know, for you and I, it's one thing. But what if you're growing up and all your friends only use Snapchat? You can't just go to something else. You know, so there's a social pull in there as well. Uh, <clears throat> but so that my, my issue with the, the technology in general is you know, that they have the power and the possibility to control what we want. The more data, data they get, and it, maybe you're a free market you know, libertarian, and that, that's, that's fine. But we're, on a psychological level, we're becoming more passive. And that's what I'm seeing with all of my clients in psychotherapy. Uh, to get everything you want means you don't have to think about anything, including who you are or what kind of life you're living. Uh, so it's the passivity that gets me. Uh, this is from uh, Peter Hershock's book, Buddhism and Intelligent Technology. <clears throat> Systems of AI, artificial intelligence are functioning to reinforce the readiness of ever more precisely desire to find individuals to accept ever greater connective convenience and choice in exchange for granting corporations and states new and evolving powers of control. Interestingly enough, Hershock has worked mostly in China. He lives in Hawaii uh, and he's a Buddhist um, author, but he says. Uh, it's the colonization of consciousness itself. So if you think I'm going far, <laughs> read, uh, read Hershock's book. So we've already kind of covered this. Everything is tracked and stored because it's writing. We're writing code. We're being written, in a sense, by code. Um, and the, the culture is, is about transparency. Make everything known about yourself, about um, what you're doing. And that's, that's to you know, produce data. This isn't like the book 1984, where there's the thought police and they're telling us what to say or what not to say. Um, we're getting scripted on the fact that we're free to express ourselves. There isn't, you know, uh, any, any problem with doing that. Uh, and so it's not, it's not like we're being like monitored or watched. It's just these, these are just programs running that are collecting uh, data, so there isn't, you know, a boot on our neck. It's we're being encouraged to think that we're free to be making these choices, and this is where Han has an issue with that. That if there is autonomy, which we could have another lecture about that, it be coming from the adult state, from the here and now, um, thinking about the here and now and choices from the here and now. I don't think people are becoming more mindful as they spend more and more time on the screens. I mean, I hate to be throwing out a polemic here, but I'm not, I'm not against all technologies, but I think it's harder for people to pay attention because they're so stimulated. I mean, what's going on with ADHD and medication that's been going on for a while, but um, 
because we're not using, in TA terms, we're not using the adult state. Um, the pernicious thing is that we don't, we don't see any of this manipulation and that we think we're just, I want to go on YouTube or I want to go on Facebook or I want to look up this map, but everything in the culture is encouraging you. You're free, you're free, you can choose. Well, in China, they're not free on things, right? But when Zuckerberg goes on Joe Rogan and says, oh yeah, the FBI stops by every couple weeks at Facebook, there's no separation between corporation and government in the United States. Uh, Sheldon Wolin calls it inverted totalitarianism because we, everything is about freedom and the individual and to choose. But if at the end of the day, either the Chinese party or the United States government has total information about the individual, that's what surveillance is. And surveillance is about the relationship between a master and a slave. So we need to say, work on saying no to this because we're going to get pulled in more and more. So this kind of power is a silent power. And that's the most effective is when you don't have, I mean, we have Zuckerberg. We don't really have faces for these companies. Um, <clears throat> we certainly don't know what they're doing entirely. Um, but they're not, it's not about suppression. Um, it's all about permission to keep getting stuff that you want. Yeah. At the very beginning, you made a statement saying most of memory is forgetting. Yeah. I forgot I said that. No. <laughs> so I do, I, I practice psychotherapy all day, six days a week, right? And so I sit with my clients. You know, know what I do? This is a secret. I shouldn't be telling you this. <laughs> Shannon works with me, so she knows. I don't think. I just sit there and listen. Now thoughts will come up in my head. Oh, what time am I picking up the kids? Or what am I going to do on Saturday? Let it go. If I hang on to it, oh, like I could go to a movie or I could go to the mall. or <laughs> I don't hear what they're saying. They, I've disappeared inward. So you have to let go in order to take in. We're not listening online. You know, I, I hear your point about the mindlessness, but this is not, I mean, there's research by Sherry Turkle, empathy goes down with online usage. So empathy starts with listening. If you can't listen, you're just, you're guessing. I mean, you know, and, and saying something that you think the other person will want to hear you say, but that's not empathy. Empathy is when, when the person's talking, the pictures in my head are, are based on what they're saying. That's empathy, that's letting go of yourself, that simple consciousness. So if you can do that, then I can remember pretty much all of the session. I take notes and, and whatever, but I can sit there and I prefer to just listen. I'll talk when, you know, when I need to talk, but I'll just sit there uh, and listen. And that's what we'll get to meditation. Meditation is listening. If you think of prayer, prayer is talking. Meditation is listening. You're not doing anything, which is very hard to do. Um, <clears throat> so getting back to, the, to what's happening, I think we're being scripted and this comes out of transactional analysis the idea of a script if you think of the movie the truman show jim carrey's adopted in utero by this television corporation and so they set up a a, um, a set cameras microphones everywhere but he thinks he's a real person but all the people are actors around him uh, and everything's tracked and they say to him Oh, no, no, Truman, you don't want to go off the island. <laughs> like, it's very scary in boats, right? And so he's like, he's tempted to leave to go to Fiji. And they say, no, 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 the world is a scary place. I mean, that's all you see online, right? War, you know, 
cops killing people, you know, just atrocious, atrocious things. And those things have always been happening and they will continue to happen because humans are greedy. Okay. Now, uh, I'm not saying any of those things are right, but if we are putting that into our system all the time, which many of us are, and I'm not exempt from this. Okay. Then you don't want to leave the Island like Truman eventually does. He says, I would rather, you know, be a real person. Okay. The name of the, the transactional analysis groups that I run, run is called becoming a real person. So these are some of my own words on this. In the virtual world, you cannot wander. You must be a subject in the social experiment as a user. We are the character Truman Burbank. We're scripted to follow this kind of this form of hyper individualism. This, uh, Chris Hedges calls it the cult of the self. Um, so it's all about exhibition. I've been doing some other talks lately, and uh, some of it's about mass shootings and kind of American despair. Uh, it was just the other week in Mankato, a kid committed suicide in the parking lot at school. That's an exhibitionistic suicide. Why? Why is that happening? Why are these, these mass shootings? <clears throat> so hold that thought. We'll come back to the philosopher Yong Chul Han, he writes about the Panopticon, which is a prison design from, I think, the 17th century. Um, so you have a circular prison, and then the cells are stacked up on one another, so you can have a central tower. The guard can see everybody at any time if they move around. Now, the catch is the prisoners can't see in, so they don't know if the guard is watching them or not at any given moment. So when this is talked about, it's talked about a disciplinary society because you can watch what the body's doing at any time, okay? And the idea is that the prisoner will just do the right thing and take care of themselves because they think they might be watched, okay? Um, <clears throat> but the prisoner feels gazed upon, right? They're being watched from the tower. And so, so in this scenario or this example, um, the guard can see what the physical body is doing, okay? Um, and the inmates are sequestered. They can't talk to one another in this prison design. So this is just gonna make them work on themselves. Okay, so what Han says is what we're dealing with now is a digital panopticon where we're both the inmates and the guard because we're constantly got our phones documenting everything all the time, documenting ourselves, observing everybody else. Um, and his concern is that this is a, a kind of psychopolitics, is that the, these algorithms, these platforms actually are getting inside our heads, knows, knows what we're thinking compared to the panopticon. They couldn't see what the person was thinking, right? They just knew what the body was doing. But when the whole body is outfitted with sensors, um, it ends up being a totalizing uh, form of surveillance, and again, Nobody's making us do this. We're volunteering to, I wish I had more time to kind of talk about American culture and um, surveillance, but it's about these kind of ethos of self-optimization, uh, achievement, um, but the, all this writing that we're doing is just passive behavior, constantly typing, clicking. Uh, it's, there's no stillness, uh, there's no contemplation, and it's making people more compliant, more 
uh, dependent. Shoshana Zuboff has a book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and she calls it instrumentarianism, is that, you know, based on, you know, uh, Facebook can manipulate the news feed to make you feel a certain way. They've been doing that for years. They know how to, how to do that. So it's things that we can't even be aware of that are driving our uh, behavior. As we fill out these surveys and psychological profiles, personality things, whatever, that's all going into uh, the system in terms of refining it to give us more what we want so we stay, stay on the machine. You know, cigarettes are addictive, but the pack doesn't track you and figure out what other things you buy as you're smoking a cigarette. The phone is a self-tracking machine. It's not really a phone. I've had lots of different phones in my life. The, the, the iPhone doesn't look like a phone. It's a self-tracking device using you know, GPS location, quantifying everything you're doing. So um, <clears throat> people feeling more exhausted, you know that terminal boredom story, depressed, ADHD, because we're constantly promoting ourselves, actively exhibiting what we're doing all the time, that that's hyperactive, that's doing. That's the positive potency of the child say, yes, I'm gonna go on Facebook or whatever, you know, social media. Um, <clears throat> so it's a passive behavior. You know, think of, uh, you know, you see crows like eating roadkill on the road. They're eating, looking up, eating, looking up, constantly back and forth. It's a survival skill. So we're scrolling, we're eating, we're doing stuff. That's hyperactivity, that's passive behavior. So we need to train ourselves to, to think and remember. Um, and that's what I do with most of my clients. Um, that's what I do at a local daycare in Mankato. We start with a mindfulness exercise. I say, I'm Andrew. We're going on a trip to the zoo. I'm going to look at the bears. And then Joey says, I'm going to look at the tigers. And Jane says, I'm going to look at the monkeys. And each person has to remember what each person said. You got to remember their name and the thing. So it's thinking and remembering. And then we sit meditation. And believe me, it's not a long <laughs> seated meditation with, uh, with four and five year olds. But, you know, back to that, I was talking about the hand, this technology that we can do so much with. And now we've reduced it just to the fingers. Um, how do I teach a three year old to meditate? Right? You must be wondering that. <laughs> I tell them to put their hands like this. And so when I say meditation, these kids, that you know, are right on, the, on the, the cusp of learning how to go to the bathroom by themselves can do this. They know how to do it, they want to learn it. They want to new, learn new things. So what I'm promoting is that we need to go, each and every one of us, not go to a class or download a Headspace app. We have to teach people how to think and remember. Meditation, that's what we can do. Capitalism hates silence. It hates a lack of um, doing. So we need non-doing. That's what meditation is, just sitting, uh, to think and to remember. So this stillness, uh, stillness and silence, nobody anywhere is going to promote that unless they're selling it to you. Of course, that's kind of the mindfulness movement, uh, <clears throat> is working with this negativity. You know, my three-year-old is so good at saying no <laughs> to things. We need to say the things that we want to do. You know, you can't pay attention because you're thinking about things you want to do maybe after this talk or tonight, right? You need to work with that craving. And whatever your thoughts about the economic system, how the virtual world really works, is not going to train you to think for yourself and to reflect and to be still. 
and to be silent. You cannot empathize with somebody if you can't forget about the stuff going on in your head for a second to actually listen to what they're saying. I mean, I'm in a lucky position because I sit and listen to people talk all day long with psychotherapy, but I have to say no to the stuff that comes in my head that I want to think about. And when I do that, then I can actually make their story, uh, you know, kind of turn into images in my head. I mean, that's the other thing Han critiques the, the virtual space. It's additive, it's just adding information. And what happened with the COVID pandemic? More and more information, more and more anxiety about it, right? Uh, wherever your perspective was on the COVID pandemic, it did not solve the problem. Having all the, the information constantly at our, you know, that was available uh, to us. So I think that's, yeah, I got time uh, for questions. I mean, I would talk a little bit more about just um, meditation, but again, the, when it comes to Buddhism, the transmission of the, the Buddhist teaching is when you sit down with somebody and you teach them how to meditate. That's what we all need to do. You don't have to join some special club or, or you know, again, the Calm app or these kinds of things. You just sit down like this in rooms with people and understand that we all have this ego issue that we need to control because people are violent, dangerous, and need to de-escalate. So I think I'll leave it uh, there, but I'd be happy to take uh, questions. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, would you say we're moving into a direction or to a point where we don't understand who we are anymore because the virtual world is living the life for us? Did people hear that? He said, do I think we're going into a direction uh, where people don't understand who they are anymore? Um, <clears throat> yeah, but I don't think that has to do with the virtual world. I mean, I think that's politics, that's culture. You know, the people in charge always want you to believe that they're there for a reason. Um, <clears throat> but this, this, what I call hyper-individualism um, is a part of this, this neoliberal turn in the late 70s, you know, a counter to the, to the sexual revolution and the uh, anti-war movement, Vietnam movement, is corporations essentially got in bed with government and said, you know, we're gonna push this free market ethos and we're gonna do it through individuality. So Margaret Thatcher says, there's no more, um, there's no more societies, there's just individuals. So you're an individual. So I mean, but, but again, that's all, I think that's always politics to tell you who you are. And so, you know, I like people like Franco Berardi, who's a communist from Italy. And when he writes about fascism, he says, don't identify. Don't identify as a man, a woman, as a Democrat, a Republican, a Christian. Don't, I don't identify as a Buddhist. I mean, I've been studying Buddhism for quite a while. Don't identify. They want you to identify because then we're separate. You, you're, you're some kind of person that I can't, I can't be in relationship with you because you have these different... No, everybody has their own beliefs, but we all suffer, and we suffer because we crave. So to live inside a craving machine, like that's going to make the world better? And we, we want Mark Zuckerberg at the helm to drive us there? No. Mm -mm. So, but, but yeah, I don't think humans have ever really understood themselves completely. Um, but there is a, there's a, is a therapeutic, uh, and that's the, the Buddhist Eightfold Path uh, as a way of understanding yourself, but through relationality. That's why I like transactional analysis, because it's much more about 
how you are in relationships, not just what's going on inside your head. What's going on inside your head is what you were taught as a kid and the, the stuff you're immersed in. You know, how I got started thinking about this really was way back when I was in grad school in 2008. Facebook had only been around a few years and I was on it from the beginning because you had to have a college email address to get on. And I was like noticing with my friends, was like, people are starting to talk about Facebook in conversations, like at dinner parties. I was like, what is going on <laughs> here? Like this is strange. And now, I mean, you can't have a conversation without somebody saying, oh, you know, I heard this podcast or I saw this meme and I don't remember where I heard this, but I <laughs> like, you know, it's, uh, so that's where I, I was like, okay, something's happening here with, and this is well before, you know, social media uh, really took off, but yeah. Uh, earlier in your presentation, you said something about coming back to uh, a shooting. Jenny O'Dell has a book called How to Do Nothing that I read and I was like ready to just be in the real world <laughs> and not in the virtual world at all. But she convinced me to do something. So I was like, okay, a podcast I can control. I can record it when I want to record. So I'll participate in the virtual world. So I started making this podcast with a friend of mine. The last episode is on mass shootings and simulation. Uh, some of the ideas we're talking about today, um, but really my study of kind of American culture, the despair that people are feeling and uh, the violence and the specific forms of violence, that's where I'm headed in terms of other talks. I'm gonna have a, a workshop here at Gus Davis in December that'll be on, on this. Um, I guess the short version is, um, <clears throat> You know, the mass shootings in the U.S., specifically the school shootings, are simulations of the Columbine shooting. And they research the Columbine killers or the Virginia Tech guy or the Colorado. They research online these other killers and then they simulate the violence. Okay, so it's like um, there's that. But what's actually happening when somebody who feels like a loser walks into a space, you know, somebody comes in here, with, gun, with a gun, they have situational power. So now instead of being a loser, because they're seeing everybody online that's such a winner, they have a gun, it's called an equalizer, is what Eric Burns said. Then they have power, okay? And then they can dominate the space and of course objectify and kill everyone. So my argument in this podcast is this is just, uh, the mass shootings, the irony is it's a simulation of the Columbine shooting uh, to a large degree, but that kind of violence is just a simulation of imperialism, the domination of space and time that starts with the indigenous people capturing you know, Africans as slaves to own, like America's all about space. We have this huge continent, this ton of space, and we're obsessed with space, like remodel your home, get a bigger yard, you know? And so like, uh, you know, why would we have mass shootings all the time? Well, because we're a military empire awash in weapons, 450 million guns, you know, 10 million AR-15s, what else would be going on? That's how empires maintain themselves is through militarizing all aspects of culture. So the stuff that we've done overseas, we now come back home, like police as an example. Uh, I got a brother that's a police officer um, and an uncle, a couple uncles, but now they look like military officer, right? Like they look, they're all militarized. Uh, so that's kind of what, what I was playing around with in this, uh, this latest podcast. But maybe it's obvious, 
my attention is on mass shootings because I'm terrified that my kindergartner is going to be, you know, the next on these opaque abstract lists that nobody even talks about. I mean, the, the, the one I'll, I know I'm taking too much of your time here, but the, uh, <clears throat> how are mass shootings covered now? You know, I, I can remember a little bit Columbine, like we talked about that and talked about that and talked about it. Now the mass shooting, the actual event doesn't really take place in a sense because we just do a psychoanalysis of the individual and were they mentally healthy or not and, and why didn't we see this coming and all the police in Uvalde didn't react in times like, no, a bunch of kids got slaughtered. We should be talking about that and we should see pictures of it as disturbing as it is, but it just goes into the trash dump of other media material and we're on to the next one. I mean, I have a graph in my other presentation. I was mentioning to you guys the turn in the late 1970s. You have a couple kind of rampage shootings and it goes up like an exponential graph into the the 2000s. So it's very specific to the United States. It's not a global kind of phenomenon. And what I'm saying is it's just a simulation of what we've always done. We go into places and we say, you want to join our market? If they say no, we give them the guns. You know, and we take the space, we take the, the resources. Or if we can't come to terms with that's how we got here, then then yeah, we're, we're arguing about which virtual reality training to do next. I don't know. Yeah. My comment was really about that in both instances, the, there's one ingredient which ironically is also being shifted away, which is lack of education of the use of this technology. Yeah, yeah right. Because the, the whole idea of if I'm going to have autonomy, I need to understand how the cell phone works to begin with and all its applications. And, the, and people just don't understand that. The same goes with guns. In colleges, you don't get taught how to use your cell phone. You don't get taught how to use a gun. I'm not saying it has to be part of You're right, yeah, yeah. But if those are the technologies, we cannot blame the technologies directly. We have also yeah. lack of a, a knowledge about, right? So the ignorance. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to kind of say here is like, you know, this is what's going on with these tech companies. And I think we're all to a large degree trapped in it, you know, because everybody's got family and kids pictures or what, you know, whatever. Most, But most of it's, you know, economically uh, driven for why people are on here. But it's just... Uh, it's a it's a different you know we, we could be having this conversation about the radio you know 70 years ago but the radio doesn't track itself it doesn't monitor itself and that's what these devices do I mean it's incredible in a way but we've been so conditioned that surveillance equals safety and how nice it is to just be everything is watched and like maybe that's the way human beings decide to live where that everything is tracked and everything is monitored but it it looks like the truman show to me i mean the the best resource you get is if you read the book by dave eggers the circle he describes a a, a big tech platform called the circle but it came out in 2013 if you read it it reads like just what's actually happening like you can't, it's amazing that he like put it into a storyline but it's all about the centralization of, of power uh which is a dangerous dangerous kind of thing so yeah go ahead so uh what advice do you have for parents of teenagers um is it scary I'm, so i'm 47 i can i can i sympathize what you're saying i can make choices yeah yeah but i'm you know more sort of mature in some ways than, than mm -hmm. teenage kids who don't have the perspective, right? And I feel like it's happening to them. They, they don't know. So like, what do I do? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, one of the books I didn't mention by Han is Hyperculture is the name of the book. And so when you're on there, you're just getting like explosions of, you know, Western culture. So if you, I would be talking to them about culture, uh, which is always a moving target, right? But like, like my kids watch, you know, these stupid superhero shows or Paw Patrol or whatever. In every episode, the solution to a problem is to compete harder and or use violence. That's, what, that's what's in there. But they don't, they don't understand that, right? They just see the furry character or the, the action figure or whatever. So we have to be able to talk about culture and like what are they, how do they experience the world? Because it's, it's getting you know, injected into them like at massive doses. You know, the person brought up a newspaper. The, the number of newspapers that we're reading each day, like in terms of the data, I, can't, I don't want to misquote it, but like it's just volumes of information. Like, uh, so I would be, just be curious about how they see the world and not try and parent them or argue them, but like, okay, well, where did you understand that? Or how did you come to those con conclusions? I mean, that's where I'm, I, I really like learning about American culture and, you know, critiquing aspects of it and talking about it um, with people. But I think, of course, what's happening just on a, you know, detached level is just the virtual world is becoming more real than the real world like it's like hyper real but it's like all your energy is in trying to ascend within the virtual world I, i'm caught in it not really but as a business owner like i gotta have a website and do things and stuff but um <clears throat> it's so I, I i gotta imagine it's so appealing so attractive that for us you know old people to tell them <laughs> just don't use it or whatever but i would i i don't know what i'm going to do with my kids but there's certainly going to be limits but i'm going to encourage reading you know like nobody likes to be said don't do what you're doing like and we do things we we shouldn't do right like there's things we do and we think we shouldn't do that but if you can give uh kind of attributions like hey dad and me and you should uh read this book together and talk about it or like we should do this you know i don't, I don't know that telling people you know that they shouldn't do it or they need to is like they're gonna have to figure out for themselves but you know of course, my whole point is, this is not going to help you control yourself by being, I mean, it's, it's suspending feelings. You go on there because you don't want to have a feeling. I'm in an elevator and I'm thinking, oh my God, let me look at my phone quick. You know, it's like, it's not good for emotional regulation, but you don't, you don't need a clinical social worker to tell you that, right? I mean, kids at the grocery store, the parent gives them the device for obvious reasons. They want to pacify them temporarily so we're pacifying ourselves and i don't think that's a good strategy for dealing with despair this is you know, i'll be talking at a conference in october <clears throat> in mankato american despair you know we fall into passive strategies including self-destructive behavior you know what are kids doing now cutting you know bulimia anorexia they're destroying themselves like i have a client that's 13 that comes in and the the mom's like well she has the eating disorder and we're doing the dietitian and blah blah and it's like and I didn't say this, but like, she's starving herself. She's trying to kill herself. And they're calling it an eating disorder. She's 73 pounds. I mean, but this is what, when you feel despair, I mean, there might be like trauma in this case that I'm using, but when you feel despair, you do very dangerous kinds of things. And I think we need to work on that agitation, de-escalate, like come together. Uh, the, why I'm pushing the meditation piece for thinking and for calming down. So maybe not the answer you were looking for exactly, but I would try and just engage with them because it is more interesting for you and I to talk than me to message you. 
you know, it's a different experience, and, and nobody's going to tell them that. Are you familiar with Sherry Turco? Yeah. Yeah. So she talks about cultivating just for, for teenagers because I have a teenager too she talks about cultivating uh, the capacity of solitude which is yeah. Were into, yep, yeah 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 uh, Buddhism and meditation mm-hmm. and, and make them understand because they're they're conscious enough capable enough to understand the difference between isolation and solitude so the, 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 the technology tends to isolate and what you want them to do is to let it go so that they can contemplate inwardly all the information that they're Right, right. Receiving so that then they can, you know, surpass those feelings of which, I mean, it's not that simple, but mm-hmm. of, of despair and, and, and anxiety and whatnot. Yeah. So she does, yeah, so solitude. I think, the, you know, to the gentleman's point about the newspaper, I mean, I, 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 um, I hear what you're saying about people not having a choice. So in our case, kids 15. Yeah. He wasn't on Snapchat until his soccer team said, we have a snap group. Well, <laughs> yeah. He's not going to be the only one. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. I don't care how, how smart you think you are. Mm-hmm. It's a very powerful yeah. And so it's, 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 it's well, and it's so funny with Snapchat because you know, of course, it started out the picture disappears, right? That was the whole yeah, gimmick of it. Yeah. Well, the picture wasn't disappearing, and now what do they have? They have a Snap map, so you're just tracking everyone in real time. All so you can say, "Oh, my friends here," but what happens? They come and tell me. They say, "Well, I saw my my boyfriend was at his ex girlfriend's house. I could see it on Snapchat." So it's like again, but it's like is it missing the whole point of surveillance? Is like. Surveillance is like a positive thing, and it's like, yeah. Thanks so much for the comment and the questions, yeah. Um, so it's easier said than done, but wouldn't be a simple solution to just decrease your screen time. What have you it's, tried? It's pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. I try, and I know a friend who tries, like he, he, tr- he recently got rid of his phone and switched like an old flip phone. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he said it was hard the first two weeks. And he said he felt like relief because he's not on social media. And he said, I mm-hmm. can still reach out to you guys. It's yeah, hard, yeah. But it's like getting to that point where you cut off from social media. Mm-hmm. Well, I was when. This like big group that teens start to create. Yeah, yeah. I was always a tech guy. I mean, I couldn't wait for the new stuff. And so when I was in grad school, I had a, a Blackberry and then I had like a different phone that connect with the internet. I moved to New Hampshire, like Canada, New Hampshire. <laughs> Phones didn't even work, let alone like the internet. I, I'd go get uh, my apartment set up and say, yeah, I need like high-speed internet. They're like, yeah, oh yeah, DSL. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 DSL is not. <laughs> so anyway, I got a flip phone and it was pretty transformative. Now, a simple, simple thing, because I was out in the woods a lot and the phone didn't work anyways, so. Um, but you can delete it from your phone because you'll go on the phone and like start to push a button that's not there. It's so it's become so habituated. So if you delete Facebook, for example, from your phone, okay, you can still get on there on a on a laptop or a computer. But you got if you um, I did this with YouTube. Uh, if so, if you don't have the app, you open up a browser, type in YouTube, right? But Going from looking at your screen to opening a browser and then typing in YouTube, you're thinking, do I really need to go on YouTube? <laughs> I mean, that's what, that's what worked for me. You don't have to delete all the apps necessarily, uh, but you put in those obstacles. Because what they want, you know, I, I'm not going to talk about it, you know, today, but what is Elon Musk doing with Neuralink? 
you know, hooking stuff up directly to the brain. They want your desires at the neuroplastic level. So the, the facial recognition, if you can look at the phone and order your favorite thing on Amazon and they can make those wires connect, of course they'll do it. They want to eliminate any thinking about, hmm, should I or should I not? That's the parent state is like critical thinking. Should I go on YouTube right now or not? So any kind of, just like you put obstacles in a room to get to Facebook or Snapchat, putting obstacles, but eventually I would try and get off of them if you can, because it's, it's really not that interesting and you're really not missing out on stuff. And I, I'm saying this as a person in a different generation than you guys are, but it's, it's really challenging. But I would start there just by deleting the, the actual apps and seeing how much you really want to go on there or you're just like bored and clicking a button. Because it's, it's so, we have a, an intern working with me at this practice now, and so she's setting up a Facebook page, and so I logged in to look at it. And like I said in the talk, I was on Facebook in 2005 when it was nothing, but I went on there and I hadn't been on in probably three years or something since I deleted mine, and there's so much stuff on there. My God, like, I was just like disoriented by it, which is, you know, kind of just like a silly old man thing to be. <laughs> but it's because it keeps building, though. But they keep making it more sophisticated so it's more stimulating. Yeah, so you got to put those, I think, barriers up. It's not easy. But with other people, get other people to do it with you. That's what I would say, too. I mean, I'm lucky. I just don't really have time because I have kids. I mean, it's basically right before I go to sleep or something. But, um, yeah. Um, so, you were talking about like the anorexia and whatnot. Do you think that the virtual world is making it those, uh, what's the word? I guess, worse mental illnesses? Do you think it's making those ones worse? Well, I think it's changing. It's just changing the uh, expression of suffering. Um, and Han writes about this. He has a book called The Burnout Society. Is uh, you know we're exploiting ourselves to exhaustion because we have to update, oh, I'm at Nobel, and here's what I had for lunch, or whatever. And so you're constantly in competition, like with likes, or subscribers, or followers. You're actually competing against yourself, in terms, you know, because you, you only get engagement based on if you have more followings, clicks, that kind of thing. So he, I, I can't remember how he makes the connection, but that, that self-harm and that auto-exploitation he puts those two um, together, and I can't, I can't remember exactly how um, he gets there, but I, th I think that's probably true in terms of what's going on. I also just think of it as another, like as a passive um, strategy for dealing with, if you're agitated and you cut yourself, for some people, the agitation goes away, but that's violent. You know, that's a violent um, thing to do. Um, but it, it, does seem, it does seem that just intuitively that there's more of this kind of self-inflicted kind of stuff. You know, in 70 years ago, were people cutting? I don't think so, you know, in American culture. Or, you know, so there's something going on that's, that's promoting it, but I don't know exactly what the link is. I mean, it's also, I mean, mo most of, now that I say that, you know, what we think of as uh, mental health and forms of suffering it's, it's culturally conditioned, and it's contagious. That's why they don't put up memorials for people that commit suicide, because a bunch more people will commit suicide. So you're, you're learning it somewhere. Uh, and, and you know a lot of parents will back away 
from my critique of what's going on with their kids because they don't want to be blamed for it. It's like, well, you taught them how to be and how to deal with feelings. You didn't tell them, take this blade and cut your wrist. But it's, you know, the, the culture gets siphoned by the parents and promoted in the child rearing of the kid. So any of this like mental health stuff, you can't, you can't divorce it from what's happening in the political economic system is like we're responding based on what's going on. I think how it's become so medicalized, you know, you're anxious, so you go to the doctor to get a pill, just distracts us from well, what are the conditions when half of the United States is like on the verge of, you know, going bankrupt if they have a medical crisis or something. It's like there's a lot of, a lot of anxiety in the, in the culture, not to mention the violence and things. So it's, but it's just isolating on the individual, on the brain, what's going on with your, your neurochemistry, and that absolves the political system, the economic system, um, all of that. We're just focused on your mental health. I mean, I would have loved to give a talk on mental health. <laughs> I did one online called The Myth of Mental Health, and uh, the company didn't fire me, so I think I'm at least on to <laughs> something. And of course, I'm in the, you know, this is the name of my business, is Minnesota Mental Health. P all people suffer, and that's why we're all the same. Uh, who calls the balls and strikes in terms of what, what's mentally ill and what's not? That's a political thing. And unfortunately, we're just saturated with with American biological psychiatry to say anything against it, which I often do, is like, oh my God, how can you, aren't you worried about the children? Like, <laughs> I don't know if you guys listened to any of it this morning, but it's like, the children these days, right? Oh my God, the kids and the men, it's like, like you're these fragile little Oregon me, like <laughs> people that like are just gonna dissolve. It's like, I don't, that's not how human beings are. Forget that. Like, yeah, you, you have problems, and probably your problems are bigger in some ways than mine at that age, but that doesn't mean, like, I mean, I'm, it's back to the surveillance question, you know? Like, let's get everybody in to see the doctor and the therapist, and we'll all document it and chart it. It's like, it all looks like social control to me, but I'm kind of an anarchist, so that's just what, what ends up coming out, you know? But, but the interesting thing with uh, psychiatry is, in the 70s, when this transactional analysis kind of movement was happening and it was changing, they made a new DSM, which is the big Bible book, you know? And so they had this task force in the 70s. I've read the history and it's so boring. Don't, don't look into it. But <laughs> it's all a bunch of white guys, of course, careerists. And they say to the psychoanalytic thinkers and the you know, transactional analysis, we're like, see ya. We don't need any of your viewpoints. We're going to make this basically a computerized method of diagnosis, okay? The, the, uh, Robert Spitzer was the, the head of the task force. He worked at IBM before. He wanted it to be very mechanical. You could spit out you know, a piece of paper with your diagnosis. So that just fit with this, with this neoliberal shift where it's all about the self, all about the individual. And you gotta work on yourself, you gotta optimize yourself. So mental health is just, and it seems like just in the last few years has really gotten sucked into that. The idea that like you could go to a therapist and they could like wave a magic wand and now you're mentally healthy. And again, people suffer, people have problems, people do crazy shit. I'm not saying that's not happening. But the idea that you can like somehow come to a place where you, your mental health is good, that's, that's an illusion. You work on your relationships, you get all your relationships very good, and you feel really happy. 
Well, I appreciate you guys letting me just <laughs> rant and rave here for <laughs> more time. It was fun. I have to ask you about mindfulness. Um, it sounds like that is one of your, uh, the, the things that uh, you probably teach your, your patients that. Yeah. And you know, mindfulness has become like really hip right now. <laughs> and you've got all the apps and all the, you know, um, there's a lot of people making money on mindfulness right now. Mick mindfulness is what Ronald Purser calls it. What's that? Mick mindfulness, like McDonald's. Yeah. Um, but it, it does connect into, I mean, exactly what you're saying and, you know, trying to, and then what he was saying was, was I just began a mindful practice a couple of years ago and it has changed a yeah, lot yeah. how I, I, I live. And, um, but what, what do you think of how it's now become so commercialized and sort of popular? It has mm -hmm. it like ruined it? Kind of, or, <laughs> or, well, that's the funny thing. I mean, or is it a way of getting it to the masses yeah. in a yeah. way? Because it is, it, it, you know, I mean, that's one of the things I wanted to say to you was like, if you can't get off your phone, at least add mindfulness to your life. You know, because yeah. adding that is, then you have that other space to live. Mm -hmm. You will experience that and actually start craving that. Which is what I crave. I crave it now. Like I have to have my mindless ten minutes a day. That's all it is. All I can do is ten. Yeah, minutes. yeah. If I don't have my ten minutes, I really do crave it. And so it's like a, it's like conditioning yourself in a different way and getting something really healthy. Yeah, de-stimulating basically. Um, yeah, Mick Mindfulness is one of my favorite books. Ron Purser, who's a, I don't know if he'd call himself a Buddhist, but he's certainly like. Buddhist informed guy uh, really goes after it as this as just this part of this broader neoliberal project which like I was saying it's all about the self the individual and so you're encouraged to go inside and just focus on yourself and go a little deeper and blah 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 it's like work on yourself as as a project that's what Han says it's like we, we're making ourselves into a project like that's not <laughs> It's not how it how it actually um, works, um, you know. From a Buddhist perspective, there is no self. I mean, in neurobiology, can't find it anywhere. It's a it's a it's a pronoun. Self is a pronoun. That's why it's kind of funny. The the gender identity stuff is like, <laughs> well, show me where that identity exists. I mean, it's it's something you've created, and that's fine. You can go by whatever you want, but it's that obsession with identity that's so American, you know, so narcissistic. Um, but in terms of the commodification of it, um, I mean, it probably has a lot to do with that it is actually really helpful and useful for people, but you strip it from the Buddhist origins. You know, it, right mindfulness is one aspect of the Eightfold Path, and the Eightfold Path is all about examining ethical behavior. And the Buddha didn't say, this is ethical behavior, that's not, or this is good, that's bad. He just said, hey, check this out, see what happens, you know, and so, uh, but if you strip it from that, then you have the mindful drone operator, and you have the mindful hedge fund <laughs> advisor on Wall Street, and you know, it's like, it's like there's no ethics to it, but the idea of, you know, placing your attention on an object and holding it there, you know, and thinking and remembering, like, what I think of as mindfulness is, it's more about that simple consciousness that I said, like, the thinking about a baby, like baby is conscious, right? But they're not, they don't have ego consciousness. And so most of um, your experience, especially just going through the day, you don't really have to think about anything. 
especially if you can ask other people for help and you, you can ask questions. And so, so in Buddhism, you know, it's kind of like the adult state is like accessing this state of non-thinking or emptiness. And so that's where when you train yourself to the, that, like I can sit and listen to somebody talk in a, in a therapy session for 50 minutes. I could say nothing. I could just listen the whole time. That's so easy. But if we train ourselves to not listen, like scrolling and just being fed stuff all the time, well, then we're going to be really bad at listening because when we're listening, we're going to be seeing pictures from Snapchat and YouTube video, like whatever you put into your system, your system's going to want more of that. And so it is actually like in terms of enlightenment and all the like Buddhist stuff, you start with mindfulness. You, if you can't pay attention and focus and think about your own conditioning, forget it. You're not going to get anywhere. So you really start there. But, but I think it's because, you know, well, Purser would say it's part of this pacification project is like, don't, don't, you know, sit around smoking a joint with your friends and critiquing capitalism, go to your room by yourself and meditate and, you know, be alone with yourself. It's like, no, you need to challenge these systems that you're in. And you do that collectively, not individually, because you could master meditation, but it's not going to make your student debt go away. And it's not going to get you a job that isn't anything but managing data on a computer, because that's every job. You manage data on a computer. Uh, if you go into psychotherapy, you know, eventually you can get away from that uh, as a private practitioner. But that's the, that's the future I see. And maybe it's an alarmist kind of view, but no privacy, you know, kind of just just uh, meandering and uh, and work is just inter interfacing with a computer. That doesn't, I mean, I like to write on a word processor and stuff like that, but for my job, like I have a lot of uh, software engineers that I work with and it's just a screen all day long and believe it or not, they're not really good uh, with people <laughs> because of that, so. I want to ask one more thing about the, the connection you made with um like slavery and indigenous and, uh, cultures. Uh, the imperialism? And yeah. The destruction of and uh, colonialism. Um, another, one of the things I also studied last year was uh, I took a sabbatical just to study Native American cultures of Minnesota. And it was, you know, like, of course I had not learned a lot of it in my yeah. education. I was like, kind of like, oh my God. And, um, but that, but that is very interesting how you connected it and informs like our society today, and then this whole uh, the mass shooting. And, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I just never. Thought well, I was uh, I had to, I had to do a well I had to do a I had a minor surgery in August, and so I was laid up for a couple of days, and I'm watching uh, the Instant Dream Home on Netflix. Has anybody seen that? I mean, you can imagine it. it's like one of those remodeling shows. But so what they do is it's um, they have an insider, a friend of the family. And so the friend takes them away. And so when the family's gone, they remodel the house in 12 hours, which is absurd. You can't, you can't, can't remodel a bathroom in 12 hours. So what do they do? They run simulations of the, what they're going to do ahead of time, R&D, for like months before this. But so they come in, and the first thing they do is they just take out everything of the house. And the, the people aren't there to watch it. They've, of course, signed up for it, so they know that it might happen. But it's like coming to the Americas and just 
taking all the culture and just saying, let's shoot all the buffalo and let's just get rid of everything, okay? And then we're going to remodel. A home is just a simulation of, you know, European ways of living, right? Like that type of, uh, it's, it's really just like settler colonialism is like, that's what a home is. Well, why couldn't a home be, you know, a tree house or I'm, I'm just making stuff up, but like it's a simulation of what a home is. So these people come in, they take away all the culture, the family stuff, and they put in a lot of it's prefabricated, like the kitchen and stuff, because they don't have have time. But the whole time, the beginning of the show, they're like got walkie talkies and they're like surveilling the house as they leave. There's cameras. And so it's like this idea that like surveillance is like a gift. It's like we're just going to, you know, erase all and bring the new. And like and it's so for me, I started thinking about it and writing about it. I was like. Oh, it's an insta culture. We want everything instantly. And we demand it and we demand space and time and like that is like goes all the way back to that same thing. Then, then how it's but how it shows up in this marketing uh, in terms of the show is like, oh, that's such a great thing. They, they made this house new and special and like but they just like demolished any kind of memories or things, actual things that the people had. And again, they signed up for it or whatever. But it's like when you're watching it, you just think, I, I'm, I guess I don't know what people are thinking, but it got me to that place of like, oh, well, this is just the domination of space time and reconfigured now. But it's but so it was also I'm going on and on here. But when I when I read Baudrillard, he has a book. He has simulacra, simulacra and simulation is one book, but he has another book called America. And he was saying how America is is a primitive society because we're just remodeling the model. Like it's like America exists like it's always been America. And that's of course partially, we don't think about the origin story and the indigenous people and the slavery. It's like we've always been America. So it's like we're constantly remodeling this model versus thinking about other models. But so, but I think the, the, the metaphor is like remodeling the house that everybody knows about, like remodel the self. Constantly optimize it, remodel it. Mental health, drugs, brain hack, this, that is like that's that's what people are selling and selling goods to do that. And experts, it's a very expert kind of society. But all of that doesn't lend to any reflection of like how do we, how does society, you know, get to this way? And we could very easily change that. I mean, I'm big on getting people in a room together and like thinking about these ideas because there's so much despair. Like the climate change is an easy thing. It's like, we're all going to die. What are we going to do? It's like, well, it's true. I mean, the world is getting hotter every year. There's definitely something going on. But like, uh, you know, oh, dear, go back to scrolling. You know, it's like we can make it. We have much more power than, than we think. I was trying to figure out how to bring it into this lecture. But like, you know, that market capitalization for the big tech, 13 percent or whatever, like, do they really have that much power or is there power in, you know, people saying how powerful they are? And that's where I'm stuck. I don't know. I don't know for sure. I mean, it seems like they've got a lot of power, but I think they're I think they, you know, have trouble sleeping at night because they think it could all fall apart, too. And we just need to push them um, on that on these things. And I, the only thing I can do is educate. You know, I can't go on protests and go to jail and do all the things I would have done if I didn't have kids probably. But <laughs> so that's my uh, idea. Sorry, I had to kind of rush through the end, but thanks so much uh, for listening. Thanks so much for coming.